0: we're all very deeply familiar with these words. Silent night, all is calm, all is bright, right? Holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Now, as I was singing this this past week and reading these lyrics, what I immediately thought of is that is a a bunch of (laughs) crock. Like that is a load of garbage, those words. Now, bear with me if you like the song. Let me explain what I mean. But those words, if we know the true Christmas narrative, fail to paint the fullest of pictures. See, despite what Christmas traditions, what Christmas postcards and Christmas pageants and Christmas ornaments and porcelain Christmas nativities have spoon-fed us, there was nothing calm and there was nothing peaceful about the birth of Jesus Christ. There's nothing calm ever about a birth of any baby, I would know I have firsthand experience. Not giving a baby or having birth of a baby, you know what I mean. I have firsthand experience of being there when a baby was being born. So I can say this firsthand. There's much pain, there's a lot of anxiety, and there's a lot of fear of both known and unknown, and so on. So when my child was born 10 years ago, now, my son Moses, um, I don't know if anybody's had a chance to do this, but it was a moment that changes you. If anybody here is a parent, they know that the birth of a child changes everything about you. It changes your title. It changes your heart. It changes your actions and your intentions. And I remember the first time I held my son was the first time that I had cried in a lot in a very you know, long amount of years. And as I sat there holding for the first time, crying tears of joy because, you know, you're holding your very own little frail blob. As I'm holding my son for the first time, I couldn't help but think how defenseless he was or how fragile or how humble this baby was. And as I was thinking about my son, I love this very daunting and haunting quote from Frederick Buechner where he talks about this on Christ's birth. And this is going to help paint our picture. But he says, ultimate mystery was born with a skull you could crush with one hand. See, ultimate mystery is born with a skull you could crush one-handed. Incarnation is not tame. It is not tame. It is not beautiful. It is uh, inhabitable, Excuse me, inhabitable terror. It is terror. The mystery of God, the God of our galaxies, to be able to have a skull so fragile it could be crushed with one hand. This writer goes. No, this is this is a lot of terror. This is haunting. There was nothing tender or mild about this night. There was nothing tender or mild about this birth or this baby. For the most part, the birth of Jesus, Christmas night, whatever, it was troublesome. It was extremely troublesome in many, many different layers. You see, just beyond birth and a lack of epidurals and a lack of nurses, beyond that, it was troublesome for very, very dark um, reasons, extremely dark reasons. And tonight, I want us to see the Christmas story through the eyes of Herod, King Herod. Are we going to be able to cover his entire life? No, but I want to be able to just get a glimpse of the Christmas story from Herod's perspective. Actually, our entire Christmas series will be able to look at the Christmas story from different levels and different pairs of eyes of those who were directly affected by the birth of Jesus. It's this beautiful imagery Hebrew men and Hebrew women back in the day used to believe that the stories and the words of scripture were like a gem. And as you held the gem up to the light and you turned it in your hand, then you would have, you'd have the ability to see different colors and different sparkles and different radiancies. That's the same thing that we are doing tonight. We are taking the incarnation gem and we are turning it over in our hand to see different colors and different reactions and new reactions and new disturbances that this Christ child brought. And friends, there is a mosaic of reactions that we'll be seeing over these next few weeks, each of which comes with its own archetypal lesson and symbols for us to learn from and to see. See, God comes into the world, and for some, it gives us incredible amount of meaning and purpose. And for others, it gives us incredible amount of rejection, or dare I even say, hatred. And that could be true of people in this room tonight, religious or irreligious. Some here believe in the Christmas story, and others here right now probably maybe potentially hate the Christmas story, or even I'd go as far as, say, the God of the Bible. See, no two people behold God becoming an infant the same way. Mary, as we'll see next week, Mary beholds God coming, you know, as an infant this way, and Joseph this way, and the shepherds this way. But Herod, King Herod, probably has the most distressing of responses, the most distressing of reactions in the whole birthing of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with Herod, allow me just to give a few bullet points to flesh this guy out a bit, because he was a total freak. So I want to be able to explain Herod. Now, not only was Herod a freak, but let me just say up front, Rome actually considered Herod the most effective leader that Israel ever had. They said, no, 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 no. Herod is the most effective leader we've ever had. And actually, many people during that time, a lot of Israel, it's like, no, we're down with Herod. Herod seems to be cool. Not all of them, but most actually got along and liked him. But Herod ruled in a time where ruthless, ruthlessness is what made one survive. You had to be ruthless to survive. And again, so if you wanted to see maybe a more modern understanding of Herod, think of the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. Everybody know what I'm talking about? The, the, the queen, Right. I want that picture or that attitude right now. Here's why. He had 10 or so wives, but that did not stop him from executing his favorite one. In fact, if anybody was ever skeptical of Herod, he would have them executed. If anybody ever disagreed with Herod, he would say off with their head. See, Herod had his mother-in-law, his two brother-in-laws, three of his own sons and his barber executed. The reason he even murdered his own son was because upon his deathbed, he felt that his son was vying for the throne. There's a famous saying from Caesar during that time. It says, it is far better to be Herod's pig than his son. See, all that to say, Herod is a shining symbol of power. He's a shining symbol of royalty and kingship. And nothing would ever, ever, ever in Herod's mind come between him and his throne nothing would stop Herod from wearing his crown but then one day he gets a quiet little quaint knock at the door Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 if you have a bible if not should be on the screen allow me to read it to you one more time now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king from what we just know of Herod that verse is already extremely scandalous is it not One more time, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and get this, listen to this, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Can you, again, what we know of Herod, can you hear his teeth grinding when he sees us? Can you hear his teeth chattering as the men come in going, where is the king of the Jews? Let's keep reading. When Herod heard the king, excuse me, when Herod the king heard this, he was what? He was troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So why was Jerusalem troubled? Well, because the rumor of this newborn king, if Herod is upset, the people are upset. If Herod is bothered, we are bothered. A political upheaval. It's this weird emotion. You remember all those weird emotions that we've all had this whole entire year with the election season? You know that weird emotion with all the opposing opponents? That is what they are feeling in that moment in Israel. That weird anxiety when it comes to something's not right with the government, something's crazy happening, whatever you want to say. And all of this trouble that Herod is feeling because these wise men walked in going, Where is the king of the Jews? And all of this trouble ushered in hell, basically. It ushers in hell. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, if you remember from our reading earlier, that Herod was one of the guys, like he's telling the wise men as they showed up, he was telling them, no, 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 you tell me where the little baby is so I can, I can snuggle it. What did he want to do? He wanted to kill him, exactly. So he God warns him in the dream, do not trust Herod, and look at what happens. He became furious, and he sent him, and he killed all male children in Bethlehem. He became furious, and he sent him, and killed all male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, who were two years older, under according to that time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod, like a wild animal, eats the young, and ends up essentially ending the lives of all babies in the entire region. That we can have speculation on the exact amount of that was. There's speculation from 20 to 200 babies, two and under, that Herod took the lives of. Now, I don't want to just skim over this. I don't want to skim over this. I want us to, for a moment, sit and feel the gravity of this. Because I want us to imagine, as a parent, or as a sibling, or as a grandparent, Reading that decree. Imagine reading that decree. You check your mail and you open that up. Imagine hearing the screams next door as they tear the crying child away and all you know is your son is next. Or imagine if, you have, if you've just given birth after months or years of trying and then all of a sudden you know that Herod has just put this new rule out. Imagine the fear and I want us to imagine the hatred. I want us to imagine the coldness and the desperation. And all of that, and in all of that hell is when God comes. And in all of that hell, God shows up. In that moment, see, in the midst of blood and slaughter of the most evil, disturbing kind, Christ is born. Christ is born in the middle of a nightmare. Think of the actual day of Christmas itself, December 25th. Now, I don't want to bum anybody out, but Jesus was not actually born on the 25th. I don't want to freak anybody out or disrupt anybody's Christmas this year, but he was not born on the 25th. That was something that was implemented in the 300s. But why was it implemented in the 300s? Why? Because people at that time believed that December 25th was the winter solace, meaning this is the longest, coldest, and darkest night of the entire year. They said, no, no, that's, that's when Christmas should be. So Christmas, Christ mass, much like Catholic mass, is this idea that on the coldest, harshest, and darkest of nights, a candle is lit. Isn't that beautiful? That is when a candle needs to be lit because that is when Christ steps into our lives. So like a light in the darkness or like a savior in the midst of slaughter or like a hero in the chaos Christ shows up. Again, friends, this is why Silent Night, as beautiful as the song is, is not the most perfectly worded song to describe the night that Jesus showed up. Because think about this. Knowing what we know from the story, Christ was born as a fugitive. He was hunted as assassins. He was in a family with a tainted reputation, away from any form of comfort or safety. And this all happened again in the midst of hate, fear, jealousy, and genocide, and genocide, all because this baby to Herod rivals his throne, rivals his throne. To Herod, Jesus is this stick of dynamite, this explosion, which in my opinion, at least I know from my own heart, is an emotion that can be lost during the hustle and bustle of the season, right? I don't know about you, if you guys have crazy travel plans, shopping, seeing family here, wrap-up finals here, whatever it could possibly be, in the hustle and bustle, we can miss this explosive emotion. See, churches across, 99% of Jesus churches across the globe take multiple weeks, multiple weeks, to be able to just sit in the fact that God incarnate, that God became man, that we have to slow down and go, wait, what? That God incarnate. Incarnate. Incarnation is just that fancy word that, you know, carne, like meat, carnivore, or, or carne asada. Oh my gosh. So in carne, in flesh, in meat, God came in carne asada. Does that make sense? So incarnation. So God in flesh, God with us, God here. It takes weeks, it takes a lifetime to even comprehend this. See, Christmas is to be this thunderbolt that God walks in our midst as human. What? That God walks in our midst as human. One of the most shocking doctrines, I, I'd say, of the Christian faith, if not of that shakes and rattles and rolls all other faith systems around it. I love so much this Christmas, this Christmas quote from Dan Schaefer, author Dan Schaefer. He says, we can never hope to capture the Christmas spirit and make it our own unless we understand God is so much greater than we ever thought he was. We thought we all, we knew all we knew about God, right? We thought we knew all about God. And then, what? Then the incarnation proved us wrong. Then the incarnation proved us wrong. I think throughout a Christian's life, that there are numerous times where we stand in awe and we get this understanding of God and there's this you know, reverence and worship. Creation, yes, and miracles, his characteristics. But to behold, meaning to see and know. Not just see, to behold means to see and know. God becoming a man, an artist stepping into his creation, the king of heaven and earth taking his rightful throne, is amongst the most gripping to our heart. The incarnation should be amongst the most gripping to our heart. It should melt the noodles in our brain. Everything, everything we thought we knew about God has just been proven wrong. I love this one quote I read where it says, throughout the Bible, the incarnation, the birth of God as Jesus is the sunrise to all of Scripture. It is the sunrise. Everything we thought we knew, God has proven us wrong. So this Christmas, I I, I would just encourage us as a friend, I would encourage as a pastor to make it an opportunity to assess your own reaction to this new life, especially when that new life threatens our crowns or our kingship or our royalty or our reign. See, Christmas is to be a reminder that we are not the rightful kings or the rightful queens of our own lives. See, the troubled Herod is a powerful challenge to both Christians and not Christians. To behold and witness with my own reaction. What is behold and witness my own reaction? What is my reaction this Christmas? What is to be our reaction this Christmas to new life, especially a new existence that threatens my current one, where God says, no, I want this for you. No, no, I want this for you. Jesus, my son, is to be king. That is what I want for you. And it threatens our crown as it threatens Herod's. A threat to our control or our gratification or our felt needs or our wants, our fame, popularity, reputation, whatever. Now, I want us to see as we're looking at Herod, I want us to see that that our intrinsic response to the coming king, to the birth of Jesus is identical to Herod's. I want us to see that it's identical to Herod's Because when anything rivals our crown or our throne, it will always result in rebellion. Our hearts will result in rebellion. Reason being, because Jesus, if he is not king, then we are, or vice versa. If we are not king, Jesus is to be. And flip side again, if we were the crown, Christ doesn't, and so on and so forth. See, we aren't to see Herod as I was really hoping this would make sense, but we aren't to just see Herod as some like bad example, some creepy example. Herod's a jerk. We aren't just to see that and go, Herod, I don't want to be Herod. Herod isn't some ancient example, but I want us to see that he's a living expression of every single one of us. We are Herods. We are Herods. Herod is every man and every woman here. If we're offended by this, Then I would I would say good. We are to be offended by this. Christmas is offensive. Every inch of Christmas is offensive. The Christmas season, particularly with the church calendar, they call it Advent. Meaning it's you know about waiting, it's about patience, it's about preparation. I want us to get this. You see, the Jewish men and women were in the, what they would call the season of Advent where they were oppressed and they were waiting for a king to come and completely wipe out and destroy all the tyrants and their horrible sins. All these Old Testament promises, Advent, constantly waiting for Christmas, that one Christmas, constantly waiting, constantly waiting for, come, for God to come and wipe out all of their horrible sins. And then one day what happens? An angel appears and he appears before them, and you know what the angel says? God has come to rescue you from your sins. After all this, after all this waiting, you're supposed to take out the tyrants. No, God has come to rescue you from your sins. All have and still do challenge and rival God's crown. Basically, there's no one innocent There is no one innocent. I don't have to tell any of us that we're not perfect. I know this church pretty well. For the most part, we're all very well aware of our faults. No, I know about this about me, and I know this about me. See, our self-righteousness, again, there's just nobody is innocent here. And friends, this is troublesome. This is shocking. This is disturbing, both to Christians and unchristians, that God has come to save us from ourselves. You see, we all have need we've all rebelled, we're all Herods, and we have oppressed and we have oppressed others. We have been oppressed and we've oppressed others. I really want us to get this lesson when reading scripture, when reading the Bible, we are not the wise men in the story. We are the Herods, troubled by the loss of our crown. Think about it, we are not the Moseses of the story. We are the Pharaohs of the story, losing our grip on the control of all things of our life. I want us to read the Bible and realize that we are not the Davids of the story. We are the Goliaths offending the very name of God. And this understanding should be like the feeling of hunger so that every time we feel that pain in our gut, it reminds us of our need for God to punch a hole in this earth and climb it every time. My friends, that's exactly what Christmas is. Christmas is offensive. Christmas is offensive. The gospel truth of Jesus Christ is offensive. But no matter how, you know, I would hope that no matter amount of of the words I would say that that would offend, I think we would hopefully realize in this moment that God is far more offended by the actions and words and deeds of all throughout the time and course of human history. And even through that, still God came. Like a candle in the dark, God came. So anyway, what does any of this mean? What does any of this mean? Well, I would say it would mean that the undertow of Christmas is this, that despite Herod or Wiseman, despite innocence and lack thereof, there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. While on the flip side, there's nothing we could do to make God love us less. See, God came to save and bring near both wise men and Herods, right? Both Moses and Pharaoh's and David's and Goliaths, both religious and irreligious, both the atheists and ambassadors, and both good-hearted and evil hearted. Christmas flatlines all of it. Christmas flatlines all of it, all parts of us. It blasted away, all levels, all layers. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more or less. I like the way pastor and writer Chuck Colson has, has said about this. He goes, so yes, the birth of Jesus is a glorious moment and the manger scene brings comfort and joy and Christmas cheer, but should also inspire a holy tear in us that baby is God incarnate and the king who came to set captives free through his violent bloody death on the cross as atonement for us, his unworthy subjects. It's a little intense. All should be inspired by a a holy terror that God has come. With this knowledge of Christmas, what I would love for us to get with this knowledge of Christmas is that nobody is safe. No one is safe. Meaning if God comes in the darkness or if God comes in the cold, or if God comes in the small, or if God comes in the unattractive and the humble, the gross, there is no place that he is not willing to go to be with those he loves. There's not a single place that he is not willing to go there's no length, God wouldn't go to be near. And this was proven in the incarnation and sealed by the cross of Jesus. If you're in an unbelievably challenging time, sucky time, worst of times, or best of times, and you maybe feel that even God is distant, he's distant from this portion of my life, he's distant from my career, he's distant from my relationships, he's distant from my wants, I want us to simply just remember and allow Christmas with many of its festivities and and wonder and stockings and gifts and whatever, to be like a preached sermon every time, squashing and smashing the lie that God is distant in this moment. It's an absolute filthy lie that God would be distant. Because the incarnation again, proves and proves and proves what? Emmanuel, God with us, right? See, what will your reaction be this Christmas when life hurts, when finances are hard, when you feel oppressed, when you feel suffocated, when you feel depressed, when you are mourning, when your friends are mourning, when people are leaving the faith? What will your reaction be? When God calls you to give something up or when God calls you to take something on? Will it be to follow Herod's lead or will it be to place your crown at his feet? Now, I do want want to speak to those in this moment who have maybe another Christmas gone by, and here we are again, have chosen to not follow or put their faith or their life or their trust in this very God incarnate, to those who reject Jesus, to those who say, I would rather stay, as the Bible says, oppressed or enslaved. I would end tonight or just chop up tonight by charging you with this. It's just a small story, and I think it's very, very pointed for us tonight. See, one time there was a soldier, a group of soldiers in Vietnam who were prisoners, and they were taken hostage, and they were tortured in every way imaginable. See, not just physical torture, but also emotional and mental torture, meaning they would... um, the people who, um, you know, the oppressors who've kept them in in hostile hostage, the kidnappers, what they would do is they would fake and forge these raids where they were pretending that they were set free. And so they'd make this giant pretend thing where everybody said they're set free and they're starting to run out only to capture them all over again. And they did this over and over and over and over to break their hope. So then what happens is one day the U.S. military gets in there. The U.S. military gets in there and they find this room of hostages who've been badly beaten and they're lying there on the ground and they say, come on, we're free, let's go. You know what they did? Nothing. They laid there. The military was like, come on, let us go. No, nothing. And so then one of the soldiers in an unbelievable moment of compassion, he stripped down into the nude, he laid on the filthy floor, he got in the fetal position, and he just laid there next to them. He just laid right next to him, as long as it took. So why? Why did he do that? He wanted them to see that he, this US military man, this Marine, could be trusted. That he could be trusted. And from that moment on, he led them to safety. All of the hostages were led to safety. Friends, to me, this is the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus. That story is the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus. And let me just say this. Not a lick of it makes sense. The incarnation, it just doesn't make sense. If we try to rationalize God becoming man, if we try to logically put all these pieces together, you and I will come up empty-handed. No amount of theological books can actually put a pinpoint on why God cannot love us more and why God would never love us less. There's no rationalizing this amazing truth that God stripped down. He came down as a human and was born as a man, and he laid on the floor and was with us I really believe in a lot of ways that God became man so that he could look at you in the fetal position of life, in the sucky parts of life, in the dark parts of life and goes, I know. So God's in go, go, no, no, I know. I see you. I know. I know exactly how you feel. I see you. You see, we can only behold God, see and know, because he has proven to us over and over and over again that he beholds us. That he sees and he knows us. And in that he says, you can trust me. In that he says, I can lead you out. In that he says, you are free, you are no longer slaves. And that he says, just put your faith in me. Now, if I can have us read this and meditate on this and consider a very powerful, holy, terror-inspiring verse. It's from one of the gospels, it's in the New Testament. And this will march us right into our time of response. So I want to read these verses to you from the Gospel of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There's that candle, right? Verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcometh. And so if we just scroll down a few more verses to verse 14, sort of the conclusion of chapter one, John writes, and the word became flesh, and the word incarnate, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now that word, word, is a word we actually come across, come across quite a bit. I, I never go over different sounding words, but, but it makes sense for me to do it right now. But this is logos. We see it all the time. It's normally spelt like the word logos. Okay, that's the word. It's a word we see all the time. You ever any word that ends with ology, right? Psychology, the study and you know the science of the soul. It's the science of something. Theology, the study and science of God. Geology, biology. So we come across this word all the time. So it has this meaning. It's a science of. It's the thought of. It's the expression of something. It's the expression of something. So, God here, that word, word, illuminates that God's ultimate expression of himself is what? Is what? Don't be afraid to talk in church. Is what, John? Jesus, right? I just woke John up. It's Jesus. God's ultimate expression of himself is what, John? Jesus. You are on it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Listen how scandalous this is, but this is how crazy it is. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. The deeds and words of God are the deeds and words of Jesus. If anybody wants to know what God would do on earth, you look towards Jesus. How would God handle a crazy conversation? Look towards Jesus. What what would be God's favorite food? Apparently fish. Jesus eats it all the time. (laughs) So for those Christmas season, for those tonight, who maybe are here tonight in a last-ditch effort of life, maybe here tonight, for those of you who are searching and are on the hunt for something more this Christmas, because there is more to Christmas than Twinkles. As much as I love Christmas, and yeah, I love Christmas, but there's more to it. For those this Christmas who want something of purpose, even for those who want to know God, there's so many people, both religious and irreligious, Christian and unchristian, who just want to know God. What is God like? God knows that desire. God knows that desire and answered it. God's ultimate expression of himself is Jesus. And Christmas informs us that if we want to find God this season, for those who want to find God this season, God would inform us, the Bible would inform us, Christmas would inform us to look small, the size of a baby. Look towards the unattractive. Look towards the marginalized. Look towards the the humble, the defenseless. Look towards the frail. Look towards the vulnerable. It's there. God is in the midst of all of that. Look towards the cold nights. Look towards the harsh nights. Look towards the long nights. There a candle lit means there is God. To remember that even in the darkest of nights, there will always be, we will always find a loving, loving, loving God. Amen.